Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Indie Football Podcast. I'm joined by sports editor of The Independent, Ben Burrows and football reporter Lawrence Osler. And this week, we're going to be talking about the Premier League's new managers. Watford, Tottenham, Hotspur, Arsenal, Watford again, Everton and West Ham have all made a managerial change this season. But did those clubs make the right decision? But before all of that, we're going to be uh, talking about the latest transfers because, as we all know, transfers are without a doubt the best thing about football. So since we last recorded, there have been two fairly significant loan deals. Uh, Let's start with Crystal Palace who snapped up Cenk Tosin on loan from Everton. Lawrence, do you think that's a, a good bit of business or a little bit desperate? Well, I think it's a sensible bit of business. Um, Crystal Palace clearly have sort of fallen out of love with Christian Benteke and it seems like he's about to move on. Um, Cenk Tosin is, I suppose he is a bit like Christian Benteke in the sense that he's on that raft of backup strikers in the bottom half of the Premier League who, who don't score yeah and they, they will come with the tag of needs to revive their career and um, perhaps this will be the move for him I mean I was having a look at some of his stats earlier and he hasn't really got he hasn't had a double figure season for about five years so I, I don't think he's necessarily the answer but they don't need I don't think they've signed him to start every game they've signed him to do what he did on the weekend which was come on after an hour switch to a four four two, and and provide some more attacking threat when their kind of double bank of four hasn't you know, hasn't produced him enough chances. So I think in that sense, he's a, just a sensible, logical signing, low risk, sign him until the end of the season and maybe he grabs three or four goals and helps him out. Sure. And uh, and Ben Spurs this week signed Gedson Fernandez on loan from Benfica with an option to buy in the summer of 2021. Um, the last highly rated young Portuguese midfielder to make his way to the Premier League was Renato Sanchez. Uh, but I suppose the structure of this deal makes it as low risk as possible. It is low risk in terms of sort of initial financial outlay. I think the sort of the tricky one is that it's almost like no win because if he does really well, then he's going back to Benfica because they're selling somebody else. I don't see Tottenham spending the 56 million I think has been quoted to make mm. it permanent. So sort of is like they're almost on a hiding to nothing where they're hoping he doesn't do quite as well as maybe they, you know, sort of weird way. Um, I'll confess as I think most of the football watching public don't know a great deal about him. <laughs> He's he would appear to be sort of a box to box guy in the mould of La Celsa really, which is sort of a weird one. They're sort of trying to get a few more bodies in there. I wouldn't immediately say that the centre of the park is the area they really needed to strengthen. Obviously the in, the injury to uh Sissoko has left a bit of a hole. Hopefully he can play right back, is all I would say. <laughs> I've heard he's just a deluxe Fred, but I don't know if that's true. It makes me worry about Harry Winks a little bit because he's quite a lightweight um Fernandez, by the looks of him, and I'm not really sure you're going to be getting away with playing both of those and then also Lacelso. I mean, it's it's options, isn't it? So I think Mourinho has always been a, a manager who wants two players in every position. Famously, when he was at Chelsea, an extra body in there, maybe someone he knows a bit better than current ones. He's obviously had a little bit of time to have a look at the squad. Um, it is low risk; it's not costing him too much money. So, I mean, worst case scenario, you can send him back. It's not too bad. Let's stick with Spurs because they, of course, replaced Maurizio Pochettino with Jose Mourinho in November. 
since then, they've played 14 games, won seven, drawn two, lost five, which means Mourinho has got a slightly higher Spurs win percentage than Harry Redknapp, but is officially not as good a manager as either David Pleat or Tim Sherwood. Um, Lawrence, two months on, do you think any real progress has been made? And, and I guess more importantly, can you see what Mourinho is trying to do? To the first question, I'd say there was some progress in perhaps the first two games. It seemed to be in terms of the players' energy and effort and pressing, and particularly, I remember the first game being almost like quite impressed by that. Mm. Um, that seems to have faded, from, certainly from where I'm sitting. And I think they've won one of their last four Premier League games. I think real tangible progress in the kind of medium term is far less sure. I don't believe he's changed as a as a man. You know, that was the kind of that was the tale, wasn't it, from the press conference, which I think as we've heard before from basically every press conference he's ever done opening press conference he's ever done. Um but he hasn't I don't think he's changed particularly. Um I don't think his philosophy on football will will change much at all. I don't think he's the kind of person who is going to evolve with the times or or you know buckle his pride in order to kind of follow what Guardiola is doing for example. He's going to keep doing what he's doing and I don't think it is as effective as it was many, many years ago. Um, and the form that they're in now is very reminiscent of sort of Man United early 18, 19 season. You know, it's mm. like, it's just very underwhelming. The defeat to Southampton was, I thought was particularly underwhelming. Um, and particularly in that game where you, where they don't have, pos- where they do have possession, sorry, and they just, Tottenham allowed to have possession. And when Mourinho teams are allowed to have possession, they're particularly ineffective. Mm. Um, and Southampton played that, I thought, perfectly. So yeah, I'm, I'd be pretty concerned if I was a Tottenham fan about perhaps some stagnation now. To play devil's advocate a little bit, there was obviously an incredibly negative reaction to the uh, Liverpool match last weekend, which Spurs obviously lost 1-0 and they didn't really bother attempting to kind of play any football until the last 20 minutes when they appeared to have Liverpool on the ropes briefly. Ben, do you think that kind of reaction was was overblown a little bit? Because, you know, it's Liverpool, they're the best team in the country. They haven't lost since about 2004. And Spurs very, very nearly got something out of that match. I think, like Lawrence says, plenty's changed since 2004 and his sort of his absolute peak. But what hasn't changed is that Jose will always be the lightning rod for everything, whether good or bad. So if they have a great game plan that gets you out of jail and does some, does the impossible then it's all down to Jose. And then if they lose a game they should lose, then it's also Jose's fault. I see sort of both sides of the argument. It's been all over Twitter for a few days. Mm. To me, I don't really know what else they could have done. If Lacelso sticks a chance in that he scores 99 times out of 100, then maybe everyone is talking slightly differently that he did pull off a result against the best team we've seen in some time with a threadbare squad playing an 18-year-old at right centre-back out of nowhere. And it's worth noting as well that the biggest grumble so far has been that he hasn't improved the defence, which is quite kind of ironic given the, the reaction to this performance. Yeah, precisely. I think it's, I mean, the it's almost like what is he supposed to do? It's like if you go and try and take Liverpool out of your own game, you are going to lose. It's what yeah. City famously did in the lockout stages of the Champions League a couple of seasons ago. They tried to fight fire with fire and got burned massively. And Pep, who is the best coach in the world, one of the best coaches in the world, responded to that by playing much more proactively against them the last couple of times and has got results so and he didn't get hammered for playing Laporte at left back and trying to nullify Salah and the things that Mourinho similarly tried to do and Pep's doing it with much better resources so I don't really know what else he could have tried to do obviously you want to they were 
they weren't they weren't the best team on the pitch. Liverpool were, but then that's the same for every team who's played Liverpool this season. So I think you could criticise them for Southampton, a game I watched, and they were very poor in that game. I think that's absolutely fair. What he did against Liverpool, I think, is. I mean, what else are you supposed to do? I agree with that. I think the Liverpool game almost was a great, yeah, was a great example of when he's at his best, which is spoiling other people's plans, like you say. Um, and I think the criticism of that performance was a bit over the top. I think Tottenham had more shots than Liverpool had, and like you say, they could have actually equalised. They could have got a point out of that game. But just going back to that point about you know people expecting him to improve the defence, he didn't really do that at Manchester United. Really, um, he spent the whole time demanding more centre backs, and when he bought more centre backs, they didn't improve the defence at all, and they went down as flops. Um, so I'd, I kind of think that's almost a myth that, that, that he is this manager that comes in and stabilises a, mm. a back four, and, and, and that doesn't really happen as people say it, say it does. On that point, do you think Tottenham's defence now is much better than that Manchester United defence because you've got two admittedly quite old but once world-class defenders in Vertonghen and Alderweireld? Davinson, who looks very talented, Foy, Tanganga's appeared out of nowhere. So, sh- you know, should he be able to fashion something relatively resolute from that? Yeah, I suppose he should. That is a good argument. I think it's a better, yeah, man for man, it's probably a stronger defence than... Certainly, you know, let's leave Aurier out of that. Yeah, well, I mean, he didn't. I suppose Mourinho didn't really have one um, Bataka, so it's slightly. Yeah, he, it was probably not as good a defence as he's got now. I suppose the problem he's got now is that the centre backs, who are the cornerstone of that defence at Spurs, don't necessarily want to be there. Mm. Um, so, it's yeah, it's a difficult one. He probably doesn't have the protection he wants as well. You know, Sissoko obviously is injured, and that I suppose the midfield is lacking a little bit of security, which United had a bit with. Matic before he kind of got a bit slow the one thing I think he has kind of struck upon and it's an incredibly wanky phrase for which I apologise but the asymmetric defence where he had it against West Ham and Davis sitting deep and and Aurier bombing forward on the right and now it's kind of you've got Tanganga kind of sitting deeper and Sessegnon kind of bombed up in the uh, FA Cup Do, do you think that's something that could kind of kind of work in the Premier League I think so I think you've seen to go back to Pep again, you've seen him play with literally without a right back before. There's mm-hmm. no reason why just because you put it on a piece of paper that it has to be a symmetrical formation. If you're if you don't believe you're going to be attacked down one side, then why cover a threat that isn't there? So I don't think there's anything against that. I think to go to the point of the sort of not improving the defence, it sort of feels to me a bit like that 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 defending is the sole job of the defenders is a bit of a myth. And so it's like, oh Spurs are conceding too many goals, it must be the goalkeeper and the back four's fault. But I don't think that's necessarily true. I think defending is a entire team's job. And if you look at the makeup of his midfield, which he doesn't really know what his best one is, I don't think yet. There isn't much protection for those two centre-backs. They seem to get quite a lot of people running straight at them, which is difficult for any defender, regardless of how good you are. Mm. And I think if you look at... It's a similar problem that you had at Man United, I think. And it's what United are sort of going through now, is that Maguire, they spent a lot of money on a defender who is clearly got lots of ability. But at Leicester, where he made his name, he had a lot of protection from Wilfred and Didi, doing a lot of the hard work in front of him, so he wasn't getting free runners running straight at him. At United, until latterly, he's had to sort of deal with a turnstile in front of him where he's getting a lot of trouble. It's the same thing that Tony would say if he was here about Day and Lovren at Liverpool. When So he's obviously the laughing stock and he's not as good as they wanted him to be and all this stuff. But what he would say is that playing next to Alberto Moreno and having Steven Gerrard as your nominal defensive midfielder ahead of you when he wants to be in the 18-yard box makes you very vulnerable as a centre-back. And I think there's sort of, I think there's elements of that. It's not to say that 
Davinson should make less mistakes and create do crazy stuff, or that Batongan or Alderweireld should step up and be a bit better. But I think it is quite a sort of a whole team problem. You can see why um, Mourinho was so excited to work with Eric Dyer in the sense of his sort of skill set appeals so kind of directly to Mourinho. And, and we could probably do an entirely separate podcast on all of the problems of Dyer because he's been absolutely abysmal since he returned from injury. Um, just finally on Spurs, do you think that uh, Mourinho's struggles have essentially vindicated Pochettino because Pochettino identified that the squad had a lot of old players he um, wasn't able to play Sessegnon and Ndombele all that much because of their injuries. He knew that Eriksen wanted to leave and didn't really want to kind of build a team around him. And these are all just the problems that Mourinho's got now. There's definitely an element of that. I think it would be too simplistic to just say it wasn't Pochettino's fault. I, I think the narrative that came out of Pochettino's sacking was that he had kind of his time had come to an end in terms of players were frustrated with the double training sessions. And there was a lot of that coming out of the club at that time. So I think, um, I think clearly there, there was problems with, with Pochettino and it wasn't just a case of like, he wasn't being backed in the transfer market. I think there were fundamental issues with his relationship with the players. And I think that journey had essentially come to an end. Um, it's just that Mourinho hasn't, well, he had an effect for about two weeks and it just hasn't sustained it. I think, um, but yeah, you're right. There's clearly fundamental problems there. Um, part of that comes down to Daniel Levy, perhaps just not, you know, putting his hand in his pocket. And um, but then the other the sort of flip side of that is that I think he is, is one of the best run clubs in the Premier League because partly because of that, because he doesn't just spend wages needlessly. So um, yeah, there are fundamental issues there. But um, I think Pochettino had other issues as well. Okay, hopping across North London, Arsenal dismissed Unai Emery a few days after Spurs binned off Pochettino, and yet they took a lot longer to appoint a successor. Uh, they eventually opted for Mikel Arteta, who has proven very popular with fans despite winning just two of his opening five matches. Um, with that in mind, Ben, have you been encouraged by the start Arteta has made? I think you have to be in terms of that he's done the most important thing at Arsenal, which is he's won, he's won over the fans. He's got that sort of in his locker already, so in a way that Youngberg strangely never did, which is sort of a weird one, really. But um, the early signs are encouraging. I think the fact that he o- will openly say, look, we've got problems here, and I was, and apparently he, at the half-time of the one game, he gave him a good coating off, which is good because they needed it. I think it's it's obviously if you've got a £72 million winger, then you should be playing him. He's doing that a bit more. He obviously threw all four of them on the pitch together for the first time against Manchester United, which is great for the fans, but... Even better was that it worked, and obviously, it's, I don't. I don't think that's a blueprint necessarily to do every time. Be I think it'd be a mistake to get lulled into the fact you can play four really good attacking players together all the time because better teams and better managed teams are going to pick you off doing things like that. Um, he seems to have got Shaka on side at least for the time being, and he seems a fan. And for all of Shaka's sort of the baggage that goes around him, I think um, he's the key midfielder. I think. If you put him next to Torreira, then both of them work really well together. I think you put him next to Guendouzi, both of them work together. I think if you play, as has been seen, if you play Torreira and Guendouzi together, it's chaos. So he sort of is, in a weird way, he's the he's the Jenga piece and that's at the centre of that midfield where if you take him away, everything else collapses. Yeah, like I said, I think it's, it's baby steps. But I think if Arsenal are to get back to anywhere near what they were, then it is going to have to be sort of small. There aren't wide sweeping things you can do as I'm sure we'll touch on they haven't got any money to spend any, any more on players so you've got to a degree 
make do with what you've got already. Um, you can see there's a sort of style of play. You can see that sort of he is trying to be a bit like Pep, which is obvious. But um, you see he's getting sort of the best out of players like Reese Nelson, which has got to be encouraging. Mm. I mean, it's, yeah, the, it's very, very, very early days and obviously the results aren't there, but it's good so far. I suppose sticking with that theme, Lawrence, um, the kind of biggest difference at this point between Arteta and Mourinho is that with, ever, with Arteta, it's kind of evident how he wants his Arsenal team to play, even when they're not necessarily playing in that way. Yeah, that's true. I think even when they were getting smashed by Leeds in the first 45 minutes, yeah. you could tell what Arsenal were trying to do. It's just Leeds were doing it a lot better and a lot higher tempo. And it turned out Leeds had just expended, expended all their energy within 45 minutes. Um, so yeah, that's true. I think you can definitely see what he's trying to do. I'm really excited. Like As a neutral fan watching on, I think it's really exciting. You want The Premier League needs great, thrilling Arsenal team, I think. I think it, um, the Premier League's at its best when they're playing free-throwing, attacking football. Um, I think it'd be great if they did get back into the Champions League and were playing this kind of like really fast, high-pressure kind of style. Um, and he seems to just have that one thing that a lot that Arsenal really have been lacking, um, which is not basically not taking any nonsense from it from the players. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I'm really excited. I think just quietly, like Ben says, just cautiously optimistic that there's something really genuinely changing there. They seem a united team as well now. Like the mood at the Emirates seems a lot better. The fan base, with the exception of absolutely coming off Arsenal fan TV at every opportunity, they seem a lot more sort of united and, and pulling in one direction. Yeah. Um, I suppose the big serious test of their metal now is that they've got to play Sheffield United, Chelsea, and then they return to Bournemouth in the FA Cup and they've got to play all those matches without Aubameyang. Yeah, that'll be difficult. And I think they'll probably, like, like Ben says, they'll keep slipping, they'll, they'll make mistakes, the baby steps, they'll probably lose one of those games. But um, like you say, it's just whether you can see what they're trying to do within that within that defeat and I think we will be able to um, I don't know exactly what he'll do without Aubameyang I guess that means he doesn't have to play all four so he can he can play three of them and be a little bit more solid mm. um, which might which will make sense for those kind of fixtures um, so yeah it'll be interesting to see how he kind of approached it in a different way I really like the way what he's done with Ozil sort of bringing him in off that off that right hand side kind of in that pocket and then you have Pepe right out on the wing hugging mm. the touchline and that just stretches the play gives him loads of space I think I've been really impressed with some of the little touches Ozil's shown. Um, so hopefully he gets a bit of a running team. It's so, much, so fun to watch. Okay, time for a quick break. Uh, when we get back, we're going to be talking about Watford, Everton, West Ham and Watford. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. This week we are talking about the managerial changes in the Premier League this season and perhaps the most eye-catching was Everson's decision to replace Marco Silva, former Portuguese second tier and Greek Super League winner, with Carlo Ancelotti who has won the Premier League, Ligue 1, the Bundesliga, Serie A, the Club World Cup and three Champions League titles. Ben, do you think he was a sensible appointment or were Everton perhaps drawn a little bit magpie-like to all those sort of trophies? 
In a weird way, it's almost a bit of both. I think he clearly is a very sparkly name, and for good reason, as you've read out his achievements. But also, I think, a bit of sense. I think that dressing room is clearly a tricky one. There's lots of difficulties there, mainly the expectations of the fans who want them to just be better, more consistent, on a more consistent basis. It can't help when the guys over the other side of Stanley Park are tearing everybody apart as well. So it's tricky. I think the the Derby defeat was a bad one. Um, I think that's probably more about the club and the neurosis they have about Liverpool than necessarily about Carlo, although he could have done more in that second half to sort of change what became clear was about to happen. Um, he's a good manager, as has been mentioned uh, plenty of times. He's perhaps not the manager to sort of rebuild an entire squad and club from the ground up. His The time when he did that best was at Milan and nearly 20 years ago now. Yeah. And he's been more sort of dealing with ready-made squads. But like, if you look at the players they have there, it's not a bad squad at all. They spent, I think I saw this week, for like well over 400 million in the last four years. So it's not like they haven't got quality in there. He seems to be doing a few things a bit differently. I quite like the, the Coleman, Sadibi wing-back, sort of right right centre-back thing that's going on there. He needs to get Moise Keane scoring, obviously, which is big. But there's sort of, yeah, again, it's baby steps. I think, like we said with um, with Arteta, I think perhaps even more so, if you can win the crowd at Everton, then you'll buy yourself the time you need yeah. uh, because they've got high expectations for a good reason. they spent a lot of money. They want to see a return on that straight away. It seems like they've got a couple of results that they wouldn't have got before, showing a bit of metal, which is good. Um but they're a little bit away yet, but I think they're sort of going in the right direction. Tony said something really interesting last week as like a passing comment, which I'd be quite interested to get your opinion on, Lawrence, because his fear with Ancelotti is that, you know, he's this kind of, he's this guy who's got a lot a lot of other stuff going on in his life and he's got all this kind of experience and he's he's been around the block with all these big super clubs and he's not going to be the man who's going to be kind of obsessing over Scout at, you know, 8pm on a Friday night. Do you, do you kind of see that or do you think that, you know, with the squad Everton have assembled incredibly expensively over the last few seasons that they can kind of sort themselves out to a degree? Yeah, well, I think the interesting thing about the Ancelotti appointment and it's very, what makes it different to the other appointments in mid-season. Quite often in mid-season, someone gets sacked and you hear the club say, right, we just need to strip it back to basics. We need to, you know, get someone in with some discipline, fines for late in training, all that kind of stuff. And obviously Ancelotti comes with a reputation that's very different to that. You, you read like um, what Frank Lampard says about him and he was, he was quite a laid-back, relaxed guy at Chelsea. Um, you know, attacking managers just let the players play. Um, so I suppose the question is, can Everton sort of thrive off that? And perhaps is that a big shift from what Marco Silva was doing? I think probably it is. Um, they've got a lot of, they've got a really talented squad there, like a, t- a squad that should be finishing top seven top six I think I was just checking the Premier League table I think they're four points away from sixth place so like they can cl- they can go that high um, and I think they've got the squad to they've got the squad to do it and someone like Gilfie Sigurdsson if An- Ancelotti gives that kind of player lots of freedom I think can just like yeah he can fly and he can sort of lead that squad to much higher things Everyone's kind of discussed how Arteta's more or less got a free pass when it comes to results for the rest of the season and, you know, there's this kind of understanding that Mourinho doesn't have that and, and has to kind of steer Spurs back into the top four. Where do you think Ancelotti kind of fits in with those kind of expectations? Do you think that Everton fans are going to be happy to kind of write the rest of the campaign off if he gets them playing well? Or does he need to 
you know, be continuing this promising run of results? I think it's both in that I think the fans will, I mean, if they lose three games in a row, they're not going to be very happy. But I think the club are all in on Ancelotti because of the money they've had to pay him, the how big an appointment it is for Everton. Like, not to belittle the club in any way, but 10 years ago, when he won the double at Chelsea, if you thought that 10 years later he'd be at Everton, you'd no chance. So, like, they're a massive club and they deserve a, bit, a big name manager, but it's still a big, big appointment for them mm. and they they have to see it through. So, almost more than any other manager we've talked about, I think he has got a complete free hit. And it's, if you read between the lines and the stuff you read about the appointment... It's fairly clear they're going to go big, big, big in the summer. And I think he was—he doesn't take that job unless he knows they are going to spend big money again in the summer. So I think the rest of this season is sort of, is him sorting the wheat from the chaff in his squad that he already has. Which of these players can I rely on and do I want to go forward with? Which ones need replacing? And then the summer, it'll be up to Marcel Brands to go and get the players that Carlo wants. And I think then we can properly judge him when he's got a squad that he wants playing the way he wants them to. Okay, moving on to West Ham. They made probably one of the most unpopular managerial decisions in recent memory when they replaced Afbawold Manuel Pellegrini with David Moyes. And yeah, it's been a pretty good start for Moyes. A 4-0 win over Bournemouth, a 2-0 win over Gillingham, and then a very unlucky 1-0 loss to Sheffield United. Um, he wants to be seen as a kind of long-term proposition. Lawrence, could he be that, or is he simply a stopgap? I think he can be a long-term proposition. He's made a good start. Um this is almost the flip reverse of the Everton situation, like Pellegrini going out. Um, and Moyes is one of those managers who seems to have brought in the, the discipline back to basics. Um, players like Mark Nobler seem to be performing much better. So, yeah, I think he can I think he can be a long-term solution. I suppose, that, I suppose the question is, what are the ambitions of the club? If they're happy to just get back to being a competitive top-half team, I think Moyes can do that. If, they, if their ambitions, which they say they are, um, are higher, then obviously Moyes becomes more of a stopgap and you're actually looking for him to just stabilise and then for someone else to come in and, and bring the revolution, like perhaps like an Arteta-type character. Um, so I, but I think he's a, he's a good enough option for now and he's made a really good start. Um, one of the more entertaining transfer rumours of this week has been that uh, Moyes apparently wants to sign Ross Barkley on loan for West Ham. Uh, ben, do you think that's a good idea? Well, it's... Potentially, I think the the fact like they're not alone at West Ham in the fact they are sort of like a, a sort of chalk and cheese squad. It feels like you've got Andre Yarmolenko and Manuel Lanzini and Sebastian Allaire on one side, and then you've got Mark Noble and Aaron Questwell and Ryan Fredericks on the other. It's sort of like they're two halves of the same squad. I think it's a very similar thing at Everton where they've sort of got half one kind of things that fit together, and then another half of things that fit. And David Moyes has come in and you know the kind of players he's going to like. And it's no surprise that they signed Darren Randolph and they've been linked with Joe Allen. I think that's very, they're, they're very Moyes signings. I think it's fine. It's just that you would have a squad that's a bit more balanced. Mm. It's just it's going to be quite a stark change when you bring them all in at once to complement the very exciting attacking players, your Felipe Andersons. At the same time, as ever with West Ham, you've almost got to save them from themselves. And it's not, it was you could see it straight away that they suddenly get linked with Gedson Fernandez, and in no way is that a David Moyes signing. That's a very much a David Gold, David Sullivan signing. You can read, you can see it. I think Barkley is certainly on the Moyes side of it. If you can get him going, he's a very good player. He's he's certainly an arm around the shoulder guy. Moyes obviously knows him very well, so potentially it could be quite an exciting signing. Whether the Chelsea let him go, I think will be more a 
of an indication of whether they think that Ruben Lotter Cheek's going to be fit soon or not because it's sort of they haven't got tons of options there and I think if they let Barkley go they're going to need to have someone ready made to replace it. Feels very similar to when uh, West Ham snapped up Jack Wilshire from Arsenal yeah, it does. where it makes it kind of <laughs> it feels like it makes sense but it doesn't really. You're never quite sure if they're doing something to fit the the new brand with like yeah. the London Stadium and all of that or whether they actually think it's going to improve the team. Um, and you're also not quite sure who's making the decisions. You know, is David Moyes directing this sort of stuff? I don't think he is. Like Ben said, I don't think it was a Moyes signing. So, so um, yeah, I, you're just always slightly confused with who's who's got a plan. And mm. probably the answer is no one. Okay, last but not least, let's move on to Watford. Uh, they have obviously made not one but two managerial changes uh, this season. One disastrous, one extremely successful. Uh, let's start with Sanchez Flores. Uh, Lawrence, what did you make of that plan to, to parachute him back in? It was, I, di- I didn't hate it. He, he had actually had quite a good season when he was there. Um, I, people said he was sacked. I think he was just kind of fell out with the owners essentially and left and, and obviously came back. But I think they needed a shake-up. It was clear, well, even at the end of last season, that things were plummeting under Javi Gracia and we saw the FA Cup final was a disaster mm. uh, and that just continued. I think they made the right decision to step in and change him, but they didn't bring anything new. They just brought an old face and that clearly didn't change anything. Clearly, now, now Nigel Pearson has had a really impressive impact. He's done a few things. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about his the, the discipline, the the kind of, you know, raising the standards, banning ketchup in the canteen, all that kind of stuff that you normally hear. And and, and there's nothing wrong with a good bit of, you know, old-fashioned British, you know, discipline and, and leadership in that sense, um, which I think probably Watford needed. But uh, he's also made tactical changes. And we talked earlier about the Mourinho asymmetric back four, and, and that's basically what he's done as well. And he's let um, Messina... Uh, sort of sit at left back and then Mariapa fly down the right wing and that what that's done is allowed um, Saar to just float from the right wing and be really destructive. He's pushed Decore right up alongside Delefeu and those changes have had really quick impacts. I think Decore's got a couple of goals and a couple of assists in three games. Saar looks really, really impressive. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's not just that he's, he's kind of his personality, I think is also his his tactical astuteness has made an impact and they're already out of the bottom three. Okay, brilliant. Um, I think that's about what we've got time for. Uh, there's just enough time left for a hero and villain of the week. Uh, ben, do you want to go for a hero? Um, so we're recording on Thursday, I would say, after last night, Brandon Williams, who Gary Neville says would bite an opponent's <laughs> nose off to win a game, which I quite like the image of. Um, he's been... Tremendous, um, as we have noted last night. He's he's getting better and better and better every time he plays. It does, as ever with Manchester United, it's sort of good with bad, and it does paint the idea of giving Luke Shaw 150 grand a week about nine months ago. It seemed very odd indeed, but yeah, Williams has been excellent, and um, United need. I mean, they they play on the fact that they always have a an academy kid in the squad, but United do feel a bit more like it when they've got academy players in the first eleven making a difference. Him and McTominay, I think, are the bright sparks from maybe a season which is not quite as good as they hoped. And Lawrence, there's no Tony this week to uh, slag off the Tory party, so could you potentially nominate a villain? Yeah, um, we decided to go with UEFA. Uh, (laughs) The story broke this morning that they want to expand the Champions League, which I think is quite a bad idea. Um, So I was just having a look at it now. Even though they're going to have the third 
competition. Yep, with along with the third competition. This is this is twenty twenty four, so it's still a little while away. But um, four extra matches, possibly even considering bringing back a second group stage, uh, which um, was quite fun back in the day for a little bit. But yeah, it's just non compatible with the ridiculous. I mean, we were talking yesterday when we about the um, Afcon scheduling, which is already going to cause chaos next season in the middle of the season uh, Salah and Mane and all those kind of players will have to possibly miss six games uh, and the Champions League definitely doesn't need expanding so UEFA cool thank you uh, sadly that is all we've got time for this week be sure to follow Indie Football on social media to keep up to date with everything that is going on if you're a new listener please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts Spotify Acast or wherever you listen and we'll see you next week goodbye goodbye